What's up, guys? Max here. Another episode of the Scuttlebutt Show. So kind of like I said yesterday, um, today in Okinawa is December 8th, uh, but I know it's December 7th back in the United States, so I decided I would do kind of my Pearl Harbor episode uh, today. So it's back in the stateside December 7th, and it's 7.49 in the morning right now, so that's why I started the show early today. Um, we started at 7.48, so it's 7.48 a.m. on December 7th, 1941. Uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor commenced, and for the next hour and a half or so, uh, it was the worst place to be on Earth in the deadliest attack on Americans that the uh, country had ever seen up to that point. So it, it was... Uh, it's, it's like kind of like um, 9-11 uh, in the sense that every year we celebrate the anniversary. And when I say celebrate, you know, I don't mean like party, obviously. I mean like we celebrate, we honor, and we remember what happened there because remembering our history is a critical part of being successful in the future and not repeating it. And I think remembering the history of Pearl Harbor is extremely interesting in the way that it's... it's uh, uh, developed over the years, especially from the Japanese perspective, which we're going to talk about. And then um, the fact that junior sailors, a lot of people in the Navy, live try to live up to the legacy of the sailors who served at Pearl Harbor and then subsequently um, in World War II and throughout the, throughout the, the, the war. So um, just a little history on uh, Pearl Harbor, if anybody here is not super familiar with it. Um, so Japan had been planning an attack on the United States for some time um, as part of their effort with Italy and Germany to conquer the world. Uh, and you might have heard, uh, I'm going to assume, I'm going to start with the assumption that everyone here is basically familiar with what happened at Pearl Harbor. Um, and then I will also let you know, I am no historian myself, just at, from a perspective of somebody who served in the Navy for quite a few years. I love the Navy um, and I love the military and I've you know been around the world a couple of times. Uh, here's here's kind of what I think about, about the whole thing. So Japan sailed their aircraft carriers towards Hawaii and launched their planes uh, to fly over the islands and start attacking ships uh, shortly after eight in the morning one of their bombs struck the USS Arizona uh, in the weapons compartment, and that ship blew up, killing 1,100 Americans. Um, in total, by the end of the day, over 2,400 Americans were killed, and uh, it was a dark day. And as we know, it's the day that will live in infamy and the day that launched the United States in World War II. But what some, a lot of people don't know is... Um, there's historically uh, Pearl Harbor is remembered as being such a horrible event because it occurred during peacetime. And the the fact that there was no declaration of war meant that um, the military was caught on their on their heels, so to speak. But I don't know if, um, you know, the 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 drama, <laughs> the controversy around that is what did the United States know? When did they know it? As we always seem to say with these types of intelligence problems. And, you know, there were reports that there would be an attack um, happening that, like, at some point, you know. I just don't think that they knew that Hawaii would be the target. And there were communications intercepted where Japan had sent messages saying they were trying to figure out where the sailors lived. 
at Pearl Harbor. And uh, that could have potentially been Intel used to determine that Pearl Harbor was the target. But frankly speaking, uh, I wonder, the question that I have is, how many intelligence reports or pieces of intelligence come and go and result in nothing, you know? You ha- as, as the, you know, strategic planning level, um, high level, high level commanders, uh, admirals, generals, uh, politicians get these kinds of reports all the time, you know, it happened with nine 11 as well, right? There were reports that there could potentially be an attack in New York city on nine 11. So there are constantly report uh, reports coming in just from, you know, my experience, I'll shrink that down a little bit. Um, in Afghanistan, we would hear on a daily basis, this is the big one. The big one's coming tonight. There's a thousand Taliban are coming tonight with uh, with weapons. They're going to, you know, mortar you guys and overrun the base. And this is it. And we'd be like, okay, uh, thank you. We hear that every day. So um, it doesn't really carry a lot of weight. You know, you hear these things every day. And so I'm not saying that I'm not defending, you know, the fact that we we the country wasn't prepared for what happened there. I'm just saying to be realistic, Intel comes in giant amounts. Like there's, there's so much Intel. There's people talking about doing things all the time. Those things never, uh, come to fruition, never end up being anything. So it's hard to know what, you know, to take as seriously and what to put on the back burner. And I wonder, you know, we'll never know what other reports they had around that time. I wonder like what else, um, what else they had, uh, uh, there had been keen to that maybe they were, they were paying attention to. So what did the government know that maybe they were paying attention to? So there's all kinds of, um, uh, problems with saying that, you know, we have to listen to every, every, uh, piece of intelligence that comes out about that kind of thing. You know, I'm just doing some stuff on a computer over here. So I did say, you know, I'd mentioned yesterday, if you guys heard that episode, that we had done a an episode at the inception of the show with Stu Headley, and uh, he's up on the screen right now. Now, I don't know if I have to tell you which uh, which one of these people is Stu, but he's the one who uh, is about 100 years old. So if you're listening on the podcast right now, um, you're, you're lo- you'd be looking at myself, uh, my friend Mikey and Van, who co-hosted the show with us for a long time. Um, and now he's living a good old retired life out there. And then Stu Headley, who is alive. Stu Headley is alive. He's 99 years old. Um, I said yesterday, I thought maybe he had passed away, but I had been getting some, uh, obviously some people mixed up. He's still alive, living in San Diego. And he is one of the oldest, you know, last remaining Pearl Harbor survivors. If that was 79 years ago, 79 years ago, these grown men, were serving in the Navy in Pearl, at Pearl Harbor. Um, he told us stories of when it happened. He had been out that morning going to breakfast with his girlfriend, um, going on a little picnic when um, the attack started, and he had to go back to his ship. And, you know, I, and, and, and he, so, guys, here's another thing. Um, I did say I was going to pull up clips from the episode that we did with Stu, but unfortunately uh, I couldn't find those. They're somewhere, uh, hopefully on a, on a drive somewhere or something. And I'll try to get those. But as of, as of right now today, I don't have those. So I'm just going to kind of recap kind of what the conversation with Stu was like and kind of pay tribute to, uh, to this, you know, 
hero American warrior who survived Pearl Harbor, then went to go ser- continued on to serve in basically every battle of the, of, of the Pacific, including Guadalcanal. Um, he served on multiple other ships, and he was sunk <laughs> a couple times. So he was at Pearl Harbor um, manning a gun at a ship, and, uh, and he was telling stories about all these, all these moments that he uh, barely survived. Now, just like um, when we talked to the guys at the outpost and just like many of these monumental battles, they lasted, the, the, the brunt of it lasted about an hour and, and, and uh, some change, an hour and a half. So 7.48 a.m., the Battle of Pearl Harbor starts. Shortly after 9 a.m., it was over. About a quarter till nine, the second wave of the attack hit. So the first wave took out the ships, took out the planes, um, and then the second wave was there to take out the, tr- the sailors that were left. And uh, it was slightly less successful than the first wave, but still did a lot of damage. Um, it's hard to imagine. I can't, I can't imagine um, being at Pearl Harbor. Like, you wake up in the morning, and you're living on board a ship, and it's Hawaii, and it's, you know, peacetime. Uh, even though there's scuttlebutt going around about preparing for war, uh, with, with Europe, but right now it's peacetime. There's been no declaration of war. And then all of a sudden you're under massive bombardment. Um, it's just completely unthinkable, uh, what you would do in that situation, except for, I guess, res- you know, training takes over, right? Training takes over. And, uh, it, it kind of reminds me of a saying that I used to use in the Navy all the time, which is when shit hits the fan, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall back on your training. And I think you can apply that to anything in life. So when shit hits the fan, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall back on your training. And Stu went on to tell us of standing on board a ship when it took a hit and the porthole where he normally stands blew off the ship and uh, would have killed him, but he happened to be standing somewhere other than where he was of climbing over mooring lines and seeing his shipmates getting gunned down by strafing runs of jumping into the water when it was on fire. The sea just the, 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 the sea on fire from oil from the ships that had leaked into the water engulfed in flames and having to swim under the fire to get back to shore. Um, just, you know, crazy, crazy accounts. And, and one thing that's really remarkable about that is that, Here's a guy, he's, I think he was 90, 96 at the time, 96 years old, and he can. he's sitting there, we're at breakfast at his favorite diner in San Diego, and he, his hands are shaking while he's eating, you know, and, and uh, he's old, you know, he's an old man, and he can tell you every bit of that day. He can tell you every moment of what happened at Pearl Harbor. He still, to this day, speaks at Chief in uh, chief season events um, to to sailors as they you know become CPOs. He speaks at Pearl Harbor events as one of the few remaining Pearl Harbor survivors. You can find him all over the internet. I'm going to type his name into the comments, but it's Stu uh, S T U Headley H E D L E Y. If you want to look him up, I, I think you should. Um, he's just a great guy, and he was he was kind enough. You know, he he honors the memory of all of his buddies that were out there um, with him, those who've passed away, those who died that day, by continuing to go out and, you know, 
meet up with people like me and just talk about what happened there because it's important that we don't forget what happened. It is, you know, we just can't let history be forgotten. Uh, and it's not even like this was that long ago, it was 70, 79 years ago. That's a lot. That's, you know, a lot of people still alive today were alive when this happened. Um, but, uh, ulti- but in time that won't be true. And, you know, we have to, we have to remember uh, what happened in, in all of our, you know, past wars, because the goal ultimately would be, you know, no more war. So, uh, one thing, one interesting thing about the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, that I didn't know that I kind of learned this week was it was a peacetime attack, but I, I was reading this, um, Japan had sent a message declaring war, uh, that the peace with the U S could not be reached and peace talks had failed that morning, but the message was not decoded fast enough and, and try and, moved from the Japanese embassy to the White House fast enough before the attack commenced. So it, they, they made an attempt, Japan made an attempt to communicate to the United States that they were going to um, uh, cease peace negotiations, pe- seek seeking peace, stop seeking peace, and, uh, and prepare for war. And unfortunately... That message never made it to the White House, never made it to the government, and the Pearl Harbor attack commenced without them ever knowing. Um, and then the following day, the United States declared war on Japan, and then Italy and Germany declared war on the United States, and we were in World War II, full-blown into World War II. Um, so the attack uh, also resulted in Many civilian deaths. There were nine civilian aircraft flying around that day, of which uh, three were shot down. It was just, it was just an all-out attack. And a- as you guys, um, as you guys probably know, the uh, the Japanese had committed themselves to this attack to the extent that it was basically a suicide mission. And one thing about that is that I want to talk about was uh, the the the. Sa- the, the, the pilots at Pearl Harbor, the sailors and pilots at Pearl Harbor who attacked the United States died that day believing that where we are today is uh, Japan, the empire of Japan has conquered the world and, you know, that's the, that's the new world order that we would be living in. Um, and I, I was actually thinking about that a lot. Like the people who attacked Pearl Harbor did it with this loyalty to Japan that had either been um, uh, misplaced or they felt obligated or they were told that to not do this would bring dishonor to Japan and that they would be heroes, national heroes, to go conduct this attack. And it, it's, it's just, I just want to say, it's interesting to think that they could be convinced that they were the heroes. You know what I mean? Perspective is everything. What is our perspective? I, I'm, I'm not going to say any specifics, but I'm just asking, to, posing a question. If their perspective could be that they were heroes, you know, making the world a better place for, um, for the, the empire of Japan to grow and spread throughout the world, and they died believing that, and now we know that, you know, the truth is that they attacked a, a vulnerable target 
killed innocent people um, during pre-declaration of war, uh, which is not heroic at all. Um, it's just interesting to consider perspective. So I just, I, I, I guess I would always ask yourself, I would always ask myself, is my perspective the correct one? Or if I take that, you know, 30,000 foot view, like imagine you're looking down at the ground from an airplane, what would you, what would you see? Would you still see things the same way or would your perspective shift? Um, so there's just, you know, I, I, I know that there's a lot to talk about, about Pearl Harbor as far as the uh, battle goes, but I think that there's a lot to talk about as far as the, um, the, the philosophical implications of it go, if that makes sense. Like the, uh, the idea of loyalty to country, of courage under fire, of, um, of, of, of being, we, when I say courage under fire, what I mean is, we've talked about this in the show before, courage is not not being afraid, but it's being afraid and then doing it anyway, you know? For example, Stu, who, I'll pull up his picture again, because he's just a great guy to highlight here. Uh, he went on to serve in the Pacific in, in almost every major battle, like I was saying. He said that he believed that he had signed up to defend his country against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and he was going to do that until until it was done. And so he went on to, uh, to, to sail on board a bunch of other ships, and I think he was on two ships that were sunk in, uh, in battles in the Pacific, and he, he survived it all to come tell us those stories. And so um, I'm very thankful for that. I'm very thankful for guys like Stu who can uh, come on here and, um, and, and continue to, to um, tell the story and pay tribute and honor uh, these horrible events. And it's, it's, I don't know, it's a lot to think about. Um, Midnight Chow says the Japanese concept of what is morally acceptable in combat is completely different from Western cultures of the time. So... It's interesting um, that what we know now about what Japan did in China um, and what Germany did throughout Europe, uh, it's certainly, uh, there's no question of who had the moral high ground (laughs) in these these, um, conflicts, right? It's it's mind-blowing to imagine at that time these things were happening, which is modern. It's the modern era, and these genocides were happening um, unchecked for a long time, you know, until, you know, but the world was at war, and the U.S. was a neutral country at the time, did not get involved until after Pearl Harbor. Um, but it's totally insane to, th- to think that this this type of stuff was considered uh, the the right path towards victory by, a, 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 at the time, a first-world nation, you know? Um, now... Yeah, I live in Okinawa, Japan, so obviously a, there was a massive battle here in Okinawa, uh, the Battle of Okinawa, where sailors and marines took the island from uh, Japanese control, liberated the people of Okinawa, maybe, so to speak, but uh, over 30% of the population of Okinawa was killed during that time, and uh, I do plan on doing a series of videos where I go around to um, different sites, battle uh, sites of different battles here on Okinawa, and covering kind of the history of that with the local historian, somebody who knows a lot more about it than I do. So if that's something you guys are interested in, let me know. Um, and we're going to get started on that hopefully by the end of the year. So 
um, it's it's what you were saying about the the concept of what is morally morally acceptable in combat. So one thing that's interesting about living in Japan now is they are um, they I I can't speak for all of Japan and all of the citizens, but the overwhelming amount seem to be extremely anti-war and even anti uh, involvement in any sort of military whatsoever. Like they don't want any military presence on, on or around Japan. They don't want anything to do with um, major war power, uh, major weapons, nuclear weapons. Uh, there's people protesting the existence of bases out here. They want nothing to do with, um, with, with uh, another war. And, and additionally, Japan doesn't have a military capable of aggression as, you know, and, and they theoretically never will again based on the um, Geneva Convention uh, conditions of the surrender uh, at the end of the war. So they only have a defense force and they, it's one of the most uh, peaceful countries that I've ever been to is Japan. They, they um, uh, they, they're very, very, very anti-war, uh, anti-violence. There's, it's, you know, a very, very small, uh, population of people who commit acts of violence out here. Um, very few criminal acts. Uh, it's a very, I feel extraordinarily safe out here in Japan to be totally honest. Um, and, and it's a very, very, very different atmosphere and culture than I imagine it was during World War II because I figured the the loyalty that the citizens had to the Empire of Japan willing to go tr- uh, try to conquer other nations like that um, and conduct these attacks is, is pretty mind-boggling. So the... the um, I need to probably make sure I'm saying the right names here. But I do know, like, for example, as time passed, but as time passed, those ideas changed. So the admiral in charge of the um, Japanese Navy in charge of the attack, I think his name was Yamamoto, um, but I have to check. I have to check that, to be honest. Uh, Later said that he thought that the attacks were a a huge mistake and um, regretted them, Uh, not only the attack, the whole plan, um, but the, the, the idea that it was a, yeah, Yamamoto. So, um, the, the, uh, the, not only that the attacks were cowardly and dishonorable, but also that it was a bad plan. He famously said he, they awoke the sleeping giant, right? So after Pearl Harbor, they said they, they've awoken the sleeping giant and that tactically their, their move was a mistake. That turned out to be true. Um, but it was, it was, uh, also, you know, ultimately considered a very, very dishonorable attack. And, and I was reading that, uh, he had made a statement that the, the surviving, uh, soldiers and, and airmen and sailors of the Japanese army should commit suicide after the war because of their dishonorable acts. Uh, so if they win the war, then the military should commit uh, r- you know, ritual suicide, um, uh, it, it to, to repent for their actions. Yeah, Yamamoto went to Harvard, I believe. Um, Admiral Yamamoto was educated in the U.S. Um, before going back to Japan, loyal to the, you know, empire of Japan, and then planning 
this, the Pearl Harbor attack as well as commanding a large part of the military. So, um, uh, ultimately, as we know, um, Pearl Harbor did, did get the United States into the war in the Pacific and in Europe and in Africa and all around the world. Uh, and it eventually, um, culminated with the attacks at, uh, uh, and the nuclear bombs being dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, which ended the war. And then, you know, you've got the story of the USS Indianapolis and, uh, and the delivery and the, and the deployment of those weapons, um, to end the war. And it's, 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 uh, it's crazy to think what would have happened if it wasn't for Pearl Harbor, if that makes sense. So like, if it wasn't for Pearl Harbor, what would it have taken to get, uh, the U S involved in the war? What would it, what would that delay have meant? Um, what, so another interesting fact about Pearl Harbor is that the, the aircraft carriers that were stationed on Pearl Harbor were out to sea at the time. So there were uh, many, many ships were damaged and sunk uh, at Pearl Harbor, but only the Arizona remained sunk. Uh, it's the only, every other ship was raised, repaired, and deployed again. Like, think about that. These ships were repaired and deployed again. Um, and in a positive note for the U.S., the aircraft carriers that were at Pearl Harbor were not there at the time. They were uh, they were deployed out to islands, resupplying islands um, that the U.S. was kind of stationing at, building a footprint at throughout the Pacific. Because, you know, the Pacific War was just island hopping, proceeding uh, west towards um, uh, Japan. So um, th- th- we... we came out fortunate in the sense that we were able to rebuild what was destroyed and uh, and then and then our aircraft carriers were able to deploy um, without uh, without taking any damage but then you know they had the battle group the battle group had to be repaired and redeployed and ships restationed um, to make that happen because the aircraft carrier deploys with a battle group and the battle group's job is to protect the aircraft carrier and then a lot of what we know about aircraft carriers today come from battles in the Pacific, like the Battle of Midway, uh, Battle of Cor- Coral Sea. So, um, uh, and there's a lot of great uh, um, documentaries, films, books about all that. Uh, maybe we'll do some of that another time um, when we do some more military history stuff, naval history stuff. So, uh, ultimately, Pearl Harbor attacks, like I was saying earlier, resulted in the deaths of 2,400 um, Americans, many civilians, family members, uh, dozens of ships damaged, uh, aircraft destroyed. There, There's all these other accounts of, um, you know, the pilots who were able to get aircraft up. Only a few pilots were able to get aircraft up uh, during the attack because of... Um, um, the, the airfield was being bombed, so only a few aircraft were able to get up and start fighting back against the Japanese airplanes. And ultimately, only about six dozen uh, Japanese military members were killed, um, and some Japanese mini-subs were sunk. And it, it was just a massive, as far as the battle goes, it was a massive victory for Japan. Um, if you would call it that, considering that they attacked when the U.S. was not expecting it, when sailors were asleep. 
from a from a logistical perspective, a massive victory for Japan. From a a, a war fighting perspective, it was what buried them was the attack on Pearl Harbor, and what really uh, is is you know responsible for that is the courage of the military that was there at Pearl Harbor, the sailors that were there who fought back. And what I've got here is, uh, uh, this will probably be the last segment of this episode, is the Medal of Honor winners um, from Pearl Harbor. And I would just like to give a uh, one more you know recognition to Stu Headley, um, incredible American who has dedicated his life post-surviving um, Pearl Harbor to raising awareness and uh, remembering the events there. And so, like I said, I really encourage you guys to go check out Stu and what he's doing and what he's done and watch his interviews online. Um, I really feel impacted when I see, a, you know, older generations of veterans talk about their military service when they're 70, 80, 90 years old and the way that they talk about it. If you, if you can watch that, it'll, it'll really, if you can see it from my perspective, it really helps me understand the impact of military service on a person is how they talk about it 50 years later, 60 years later. Um, and I think we could learn a lot from that, especially in their ability to empathize with their enemy. So, uh, anyway, I'll, that's a rabbit hole that I may I'll get down to on a, another episode. But, um, when you start to, you know, humanize your enemy um, and and kind of imagine what it was like from their perspective. Like I saw a great special on the Korean War where, where the where the Marines were talking about how bad it must have been for the Koreans um, and the Chinese on the other side. So with that, I'm going to go into uh, the Medal of Honor winners from Pearl Harbor. So we have Captain Mervyn Benyon for conspicuous devotion to duty, extraordinary courage, and complete disregard of his own life. Um, above and beyond a call of duty during the attack on the fleet in Pearl Harbor by Japanese forces on December 7th, 1941. As commanding officer of the USS West Virginia, after being mortally wounded, Captain Benyon evidenced apparent concern only in fighting and saving his ship and strongly protested against being carried from the bridge. Uh, here, let me do this. Let me make this uh, something that you guys can see. Bear with me for one second, and uh, I will share my screen with you. So I am just on my broadcasting software, OBS, if you guys are familiar with it. And uh, let's see. So here's my screen. Okay. So if you're wa- listening on the podcast, sorry about that. So let's get back into it. Lieutenant John Finn, citation for extraordinary heroism, distinguished service and devotion above and beyond a call of duty during the first attack by Japanese airplanes on the Naval Air Station, Kanoe. Bay on December 7th, 1941, Lieutenant Finn promptly secured and manned a 50 caliber machine gun mounted on an instruction stand in a completely exposed section of the parking ramp, which was under heavy enemy machine gun strafing fire. Although painfully wounded many times, he continued to man this gun to return the enemy's fire vigorously and with telling effect throughout the enemy strafing and bombing attacks with complete disregard for his own personal safety. It was only by specific orders that he was persuaded to leave his post to seek medical attention. Following first aid treatment, although obviously suffering much pain and moving with great difficulty, he returned to the squadron area and actively supervised the rearming of returning planes. His extraordinary heroism and conduct in this action were in keeping with the highest traditions of U.S. Naval Service. 
Ensign Francis Flaherty for conspicuous devotion to duty and extraordinary courage and complete disregard of his own life above and beyond the call of duty during the attack on the fleet in Pearl Harbor by Japanese forces on December 7th, 1941. When it was seen that the USS Oklahoma was going to capsize and the order was given to abandon ship, Ensign Flaherty remained in a turret holding a flashlight so the remainder of the turret crew could see to escape, thereby sacrificing his own life. Captain Samuel Fuqua. For distinguished conduct in in action, outstanding heroism, and utter disregard for his own safety above and beyond the call of duty during the attack on the fleet in Pearl Harbor by Japanese forces on December 7, 1941. Upon the commencement of the attack, Lieutenant Commander Fuqua rushed to the quarterdeck of the USS Arizona to which he was attached, where he was stunned and knocked down by the explosion of a large bomb which hit the quarterdeck, penetrated several decks, and started a severe fire. Upon regaining consciousness, he began to direct the fighting of the fire and the rescue of wounded and injured personnel. Almost immediately, there was a tremendous explosion forward, which made the ship appear to rise out of the water, shudder, and settle down by the bow rapidly. The whole forward part of the ship was enveloped in flames, which were spreading rapidly, and wounded and burned men were pouring out of the ship to the quarterdeck. Despite these conditions, his harrowing experience and severe enemy bombing and strafing at the time, Lieutenant Commander Fuqua continued to direct the fighting of fires in order to check them while the wounded and burned could be taken from the ship and supervised the rescue of these men in such an amazingly calm and cool manner and with such excellent judgment that it inspired everyone who saw him and undoubtedly resulted in the saving of many lives. After realizing the ship could not be saved and that he was the senior surviving officer aboard, he directed it to be abandoned but continued to remain on the quarterdeck and directed the abandoning of the ship and the rescue of personnel until satisfied that all personnel that could be saved had been saved. After which he left the ship with the boat with the boatload. The conduct of the second commander Fuqua was not only in keeping with the highest tradition in naval service, but characterizes him as an outstanding leader of men. Chief Boston's mate Edwin Hill. For distinguished conduct in the line of his profession, extraordinary courage, and disregard of his own safety during the attack on the fleet in Pearl Harbor by Japanese forces on December 7, 1941, during the height of the strafing and bombing, Chief Boatswain Hill led his men of the, of the line handling details of the USS Nevada to the quays, cast off the lines, and swam back to his ship. Later, while in the forecastle, attempting to let go of the anchors, he was blown overboard and killed by the explosion of several bombs. Ensign Herbert Jones. For conspicuous devotion to duty, extraordinary courage, and complete disregard of his own life, above and beyond the call of duty, during the attack on the fleet in Pearl Harbor by Japanese forces on December 7, 1941, Ensign Jones organized and led a party which was supplying ammunition to the anti-aircraft battery of the USS California after mechanical hoists were put out of action when he was fatally wounded by a bomb explosion. When two men attempted to take him from the area that was on fire, he refused to let them do so, saying in words to the effect, leave me alone, I am done for, get out of here before the magazines go off caring more about the safety of his men than his own. Rear Admiral Isaac Kidd, for conspicuous devotion to duty, extraordinary courage, and complete disregard for his own life during the attack on the fleet in Pearl Harbor by Japanese forces on December 7, 1941. Rear Admiral Kidd immediately went to the bridge and as Commander Battleship Division 1, courageously discharged his duties to senior officer present afloat until the USS Arizona, his flagship, blew up from the magazine explosions and a direct bomb hit on the bridge that resulted in the loss of his life. Lieutenant Jackson Ferris, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty while attached to the USS California during the surprise enemy Japanese aerial attack on Pearl Harbor. Territory of Hawaii on December 7, 1941. In charge of the Ordnance Repair Party on the third deck when the first Japanese torpedo struck almost directly under his station, Lieutenant then Gunner Ferris was stunned and severely injured by the concussion which hurled him to the overhead and back to the deck. <laughs> 
Quickly recovering, he acted on his own initiative to set up a hand supply ammunition train for the anti-aircraft guns. With water and oil rushing in where the port bulkhead had been torn up from the deck with many of the remaining crew members overcome by oil fumes and the ship without power and listing heavily to port as a result of the second torpedo hit, Lieutenant Ferris ordered the ship shop, excuse me, ship fitters to counter flood. Twice rendered efforts to speed up the supply of ammunition at the same time repeatedly risked his life to enter flooding compartments and drag to safety unconscious shipmates who were gradually being submerged in oil. By his inspiring leadership, his valiant efforts, and extreme loyalty to the ship and her crew, he saved many of his shipmates from death and was largely responsible for keeping the California in action during the attack. His heroic conduct throughout the first eventful engagement of World War II reflects the highest credit upon Lieutenant Ferris and the coincidences of the finest conditions of the United States Naval Service. Radio electrician Thomas Reeves. For distinguished conduct in the line of his profession, extraordinary courage, and disregard of his own safety during the attack on the fleet in Pearl Harbor by the Japanese forces on December 7, 1941, after the mechanized ammunition hoists were put out of action on USS California, Reeves, on his own initiative in a burning passageway, assisted in the maintenance of an ammunition supply by hand and the anti-aircraft guns until he was overcome by smoke and fire, which resulted in his death. Machinist Donald K. Ross. For distinguished conduct in the line of his profession, extraordinary courage, and disregard of his own life during the attack on the fleet in Pearl Harbor territory of Hawaii by Japanese forces on December 7, 1941, when his station in the forward dynamo room of the USS Nevada became almost untenable to the smoke, steam, and heat, machinist Ross forces men to leave that station and performed all the duties himself until blinded and unconscious. Upon being rescued and resuscitated, he returned and secured the forward dynamo room and proceeded to the after to the after dynamo room where he was later again rendered unconscious by exhaustion. Again, recovering consciousness, he returned to his station where he remained until directed to abandon it. Machinist mate, first class, Robert Scott. For the conspicuous devotion to duty, extraordinary courage, and complete disregard for his own life above and beyond a call of duty, during the attack on the fleet in Pearl Harbor by Japanese forces on December 7, 1941, the compartment in the USS California in which the air compressor to which Scott was assigned as his battle station was flooded as the result of a torpedo hit. The remainder of the personnel evacuated that compartment, but Scott refused to leave, saying words to the effect, this is my station, and I will stay and give them air as long as the guns are going. Chief Water Ender Peter Tomich. For distinguished conduct in the line of his profession and extraordinary courage and disregard of his own safety during the attack on the fleet in Pearl Harbor by the Japanese forces on December 7, 1941, although realizing that the ship was capsizing as a result of enemy bombing and torpedoing, Tomich remained at his post in the engineering plant of the USS Utah until he saw that all boilers were secured and all fireroom personnel had left their stations and by doing so lost his own life. Captain Franklin Valkenberg. For conspicuous devotion to duty, extraordinary courage, and complete disregard of his own life during the attack on the fleet in Pearl Harbor by Japanese forces on December 7, 1941, as commanding officer of the USS Arizona, Captain Van Valkenburg gallantly fought his ship until the USS Arizona blew up from magazine explosions and a direct bomb hit on the bridge that resulted in the loss of his life. Seaman First Class James Ward. For conspicuous devotion to duty, extraordinary courage, and complete disregard of his life, above and beyond the call of duty during the attack on the fleet in Pearl Harbor by Japanese forces on December 7, 1941, when it was seen that the USS Oklahoma was going to capsize and the order was given to abandon ship, Ward remained in a turret holding a flashlight so the remainder of the turret crew could see, thereby sacrificing his own life. Commander Cassin Young. For distinguished conduct and action, outstanding heroism, and utter disregard of his own safety above and beyond the call of duty as commanding officer of the USS Vestal during the attack on the fleet at Pearl Harbor territory of Hawaii by enemy Japanese forces on December 7, 1941, Commander Young proceeded to the bridge and later took personal command of a three-inch anti-aircraft gun. 
When blown overboard by the blast of the forward magazine explosion of the USS Arizona, to which the USS Vestal was moored, he swam back to his ship. The entire forward part of the USS Arizona was a blazing inferno with oil, a fire on the water between the two ships. As a result of the several bomb hits, the USS Vestal was afire in several places, was settling and taking on a list. Despite severe enemy bombing and strafing at the time and his shocking experiences of having been blown overboard, Commander Young, with extreme coolness and calmness, moved his ship to an anchorage distant from the USS Arizona and subsequently beached the USS Vestal upon determining that such action was required to save his ship. Um, those are the Medal of Honor citations of Pearl Harbor, uh, which are emotional to read. Um, I try to remember that the sailors out there woke up to this, you know, they woke up to that. Um, and, and I just want to leave, you know, end the episode by saying, you know, thank you for listening and taking the time to honor the date of uh, December 7th, 1941, and the, you know, brave, you know, United States Navy who defended their ships as best they could against an impossible attack um, that resulted in the beginning of the United States' efforts in World War II. And then I just want to add that uh, I just read all of those Medal of Honor citations about defending against Japanese attacks on Pearl Harbor and I live in Japan, I live in Okinawa, and I'm going to go out today and interact with Japanese people. And, you know, peace has been made, the war is over. Um, and I, I, I just want to use that as an opportunity to remember that um, we can all learn to forgive and, uh, and honor what happened and then move forward and become a uh, partner nation, an ally instead of an enemy. World War II is a good example of that where, you know, now we work with Germany, we work with Italy, we work with Japan, and we're stationed in Korea. We'll see what happens with, uh, you know, the future of modern war, and I hope that we never have another conflict like World War II, um, Korea, Vietnam, where we have country versus country. Uh, Einstein quoted... Um, I do not know, <coughs> excuse me, I'm going to quote Einstein here as best I can, where he said, I do not know with, with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. What he's saying there is the destructive power of the military in modern, in, in modern civilization is so much that another battle on the scale of World War II would be the end of the world. And I hope that we never have to face that. Um, I am pro-peace. I'm anti-war. Uh, you know, I'm anti-unnecessary conflict uh, and war and, and war for no reason and war profiteering. Um, and so with that, I want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I would love to hear your thoughts on Pearl Harbor. I would love to hear any anecdotal stories you have about visiting Hawaii, standing above the USS Arizona, um, which I've been lucky enough to do, and sail right into port, manning the side, the, the, the rails of the ship, saluting as we passed to Pearl Harbor. I mean, I'm, as we passed Pearl Harbor and passed to Arizona. Um, it was an honor of my life to have, you know, done all that stuff in the Navy. And uh, it's a great honor to be able to continue to kind of do that now. So I thank you all for tuning in to this episode of Scuttlebutt Show. Uh, I look forward to talking to you all tomorrow. We have some cool stuff coming up this week. And I am uh, out for now. <laughs>